I will be reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. A little bit of a long passage, but an exciting story, so stay with me. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life <clears throat> and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and another, a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. It seems like every few years, uh, <clears throat> there's a new word that emerges out of our culture. You know what I mean? It might not find its way in the dictionary, but you got to keep up because new words are popping up all the time. Like, how about this word? Selfie. That's not a real word, but it is, right? A selfie. I, I'm just curious. How many of you have taken a selfie? You can, like, do it just like that. That's pretty amazing because in the first service, which is considerably older, um, almost everybody in there raised their hand too. So they're like, yeah, huh? It's like these 70 year old people. Yeah, I did a selfie. Um, 
a selfie. Isn't that interesting? Um, what is that? Well, we know what it is. I, I don't think I've ever taken one. But I need to do that today so I can get with it, you know, with my iPhone, take a selfie. What's a selfie? Well, it's a picture of self, right? Now, you may suggest that I'm really taking this to an extreme. But stay with me. I wonder sometimes if the new word selfie, the new reality selfie, is just an extension of our culture at a deeper level, a focus on self. Ah, yeah, so I'm stretching it, huh? I don't think so, but even if I'm stretching it, you know what I'm talking about. We're very self-focused. Honestly, we are. All of us. It's um, the cultural water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. It's about self. Here's um, an idea for you to consider, given what I've just mentioned. Self, it's a statement, okay? Self is not a big enough subject for meaning. I'll say it again. Self is not a big enough subject for true meaning. I think this is, this is clear when we think about it. At first, it might sound a little counterintuitive, but the more we think about it, the more true it becomes. And I think in some respects, it reflects the words of Jesus. Remember Jesus' phrases, one of them, in order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself for my sake in the gospel. What's going on there? Jesus, in effect, is saying, if you want to find true meaning in yourself, if you, the self, want to find meaning, then you, the self, need to immerse or lose yourself in something greater than yourself. And in so doing, you find yourself because you find meaning. You don't find meaning in self. You find meaning in that other. And then that other gives self-meaning. I think that's all through the teachings of Jesus. And I think it's really utterly Christian. Maybe uniquely Christian. Not to everybody unique, but perhaps unique to some other religious perspectives in the world. I want to suggest that on the day that Paul entered Athens, he was inviting people to turn away from self momentarily and to look at a bigger story or a bigger picture that he was painting in order for them to truly find meaning. Now, here's the story. Paul goes to Athens. It's rich in history, history of ideas, philosophy. They're all about the gods. You know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, that's Greece. You also know that in Greece, there are lots of other competing philosophies and two of them encountered Paul. Paul initially went into the city like he went into every other city. He went into the synagogues and he reasoned with those who were the Jews and those who were, the text tells us, God-fearing Gentiles, right? Probably means he went in and started talking to the base, 
right? People who were monotheistic. They believed there was one God, and he tried to reason with them concerning Jesus Christ. Sounds a little bit like last week when we talked about Paul's sermon in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. But things change very quickly. Because Stoic and Epicurean philosophers hear Paul's declarations about Jesus. And they say, this is interesting. Sounds like to me, this babbler just means somebody who goes on and on and on about everything. Although the text says kind of ironically, the Athenians like to talk endlessly about nothing or whatever the latest idea was, kind of odd juxtaposition. He says, these people, they say, are encountering a babbler, this guy who's going on about Jesus. But we're curious about it because it seems like a foreign God. We'd like to know what's going on. So why don't you come and talk to us more about that? Or the invitation actually came to him in a different way. It was almost like a command, but we'll get there in a minute. First, let's remind ourselves, if you don't already know, if you do know, uh, it's a reminder. If you don't know, maybe it's a new kind of thought who the two major philosophers that were identified in the text are. The Epicureans are are philosophers who, by and large, think that they, that is, the self, they themselves, are a collection of random atoms, right? Um, Epictetus was the the originator of um, Epicureanism, but... Even before that, Democritus was an atomist, and he talked about atoms and how they came to a very interesting pre-scientific kind of understanding of reality. An Epicurean would say, well, as I look around me and try to understand the world, I realize that these random atoms came together to create this rather beautiful thing, namely the world and me. Now, the question for me, in the midst of that random collection of atoms, of which I am one, collection of atoms... I have to find meaning. So how do I find meaning? The meaning of life, according to them, was to pursue, in the midst of this randomness, to pursue pleasure rather than pain. Because it's pretty clear in this random, chaotic, atomistic place that you live, there's pain and there's pleasure. Why wouldn't you pursue pleasure and avoid pain? Now, how do you pursue pleasure? Well, some people think the Epicureans as excessive, right? You think of them as pleasure seekers at all costs, just do whatever feels good. That really is not what the Epicureans were all about. The Epicureans said, what you should do is you should extract from life itself, which has wonderful and good things in it, the absolute perfect balance of that pleasure so that you're not oversaturated, but You move away from pain and you enter into perfect pleasure. Example, an Epicurean might say there's nothing wrong with alcohol, but there's something wrong with excessive drinking that causes drunkenness. Don't be stupid. Enjoy your wine. Don't get drunk. That's a pleasure. Okay? An Epicurean may say something like food is just wonderful. It's a gift of these random collection of atoms. But anyway, it's a gift. And this this wonderful thing called food is for your pleasure. So find pleasure in food, but don't be gluttonous. Sort of the perfect balance of extracting pleasure from the world without being inclined towards pain. There's the Epicureans. Um, For anybody who's doing philosophy, you're probably really chafing right now because that's a simplistic overview. But there you go. The Stoics 
Who were they? There were the other people that talked to Paul and challenged him in this text. And there probably were other philosophers who did, but Luke just mentions these two. The Stoics were, you might say, on the opposite extreme, though it's not quite as opposite, it seems. On the face of it, it seems like an opposite extreme because Stoic, now we get our word Stoicism from that. The Stoics basically said, look, there may be a God or gods, but they're detached. And they care nothing about human beings that exist like us. And as a matter of fact, the way for us to find meaning in this world, which seems to be a rather meaningless world because no relationship with God or gods, the best way to understand meaning is to find what you might call peace or repose in a stoical approach to all the circumstances of life. So they would say something like this. Pain is out there. It's a reality. Life is hard. Things are tough. People die. Buck up. That's kind of the slang way of saying it. They would say, as a matter of fact, what you need to do to find happiness is find your circumstances. And in those circumstances, with all your pain and all your suffering, you need to find a center, sort of a stoical center where you can find peace in the midst of all of that stuff. Just center in. Don't get excessive. They talked about the world soul, too. And in doing this, you were somehow attached to the world soul. So Paul walks into a conversation with people, and these people challenge his ideas and say they want to hear more. Uh, there's a lot of ways to try to understand Epicureanism and Stoicism, but one of the most popular ways of understanding Stoicism is actually a poem. It's a poem that comes from a man called W.E. Henley. And people have said, this is really the best summary of Stoicism. L- listen to this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloodied, but not bowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. This is getting more and more encouraging, isn't it? And yet the menace of the years finds me and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, the narrative. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Find meaning? It's up to you. A stoical approach to life center yourself and find meaning. So into that world comes Paul and he's preaching Jesus Christ. And they say, this sounds interesting. We'd like to hear more, but we have a particular invitation for you, Paul. We want to want you to come to the Areopagus, which is basically a council or a court of ideas, right? As a matter of fact, earlier in Athens, it had a more of a judicial standing they could actually execute some form of justice against a person. But by this point in Athens history, because Rome is now the empire, Athens, of course, is the ideas culture. 
Athens, Greece, the residual that's left, it's a council of ideas. It would be the rough equivalent of a university, let's say. Come, let's debate some ideas. And we'll give you our opinion as to whether or not you're on the level. Come, Paul, to the Areopagus. So they did. They went to the Areopagus, and Paul gave his message. And what was the message? Well, here was the summary of the message. The first point in my ordering of the message falls under the word worship. Paul basically said this, I understand you, my friends, because you're inclined to worship, and so am I. I look at you and I see myself. All of us are inclined to worship. And as a matter of fact, you're so inclined to worship that you don't want to miss anything. You try it all and then you set up an altar to the unknown God or gods. That one captured my imagination more than any other because it's that unknown God who has no name on your altar that I want to proclaim to you. I know that unknown God. Can I tell you about him? And he begins. But you know how it's, uh, how it's interesting that a person begins in a certain way and then takes a twist you don't expect? I don't think they were expecting uh, his next turn in the road. He basically said to them, this unknown God that you ignorantly worship that I want to introduce to you is the creator of everything. He's the sovereign creator of everything. And you cannot reduce him to idolatry. He's too big to be captured by your temple. He's too large to be held in your hand. He's too omnipotent to be controlled or manipulated by you. That, in effect, says Paul, is idolatry. You bring God down to size, and I see it all over this city, bringing God down to size. You can't do that with this God. He's out of control, out of your control. He's bigger than that. The second thing Paul says is I want to speak to you about existence and this God. Here's what I want to remind you of. I want to remind you of some things you already know from your poets. Because your poets say that in him we live and move and have our being. We're not quite sure where it came from. We have some guesses. Or as another one of your poets says, you're actually his offspring. Again, we're not quite sure where it comes from. We have some pretty good guesses. And one of the good guesses that I think is really fascinating is that that last phrase may have come from a poet in Paul's neck of the woods. He probably knew the phrases quite well. He spoke about them, it appears, extemporaneously. And I think they caught their imagination. He says, what I want to tell you about existence is this. In effect, Epicureans, we're not a product of random chance. It's in him that you live and move and have your very being. This person who is a God doesn't wish for himself to be emulated by images because he's bigger than an image. You are from him distinct from him, but from him. It's, it's an interesting thing that Paul's doing here. He's actually talking about the Imago Dei. Do you know what that is? The image of God. 
He's actually saying, I want to tell you something about this God. You can't do that with Him. He can't be an idol like that. I'll tell you why. Because you came from Him. He's the essence of all things. It's in Him that you live and move and have your being. It's as though you were birthed from Him. You can't do that to God. The best you can do... He didn't say it quite this way. The best you can do is look at humanity. Look at your fellow human beings. And in them, not the idols, in them you'll see the image of God. Well, there's something else that he essentially is saying with that declaration, isn't he? He goes on and he says, God is not far from you. You've been searching for him. You call him the unknown God, but he's not unknowable. He's everywhere. He's all around you. But he doesn't need you. He's God and you're not. So your very existence comes from the being that you ignorantly worship. Third, Paul says, and I think this is where the turn in the road starts to take place and they probably are starting to break away. He says, this God that I'm proclaiming to you has given you clues concerning his existence. They're all around you. And for that reason, you can't count yourself completely ignorant. As a matter of fact, in the past, God seems to have overlooked certain things. You know, it's another way of saying that God deals with people in different situations, in different circumstances, in different times, differently than he deals with people right here, right now. In the past, he said, God has overlooked a number of things. But today, in this conversation we're having, I'm imparting to you essentially some knowledge concerning God so there isn't as much ignorance as you once had. And because of the knowledge that you have concerning God here and other places, you can't say to yourself, I was ignorant of that. You're not ignorant. You're not ignorant, and furthermore, since you're not ignorant, you'll be judged. You can't plead ignorance because you know. God's going to judge the whole world. He's coming to judge the world, and He's actually going to judge the world through this one person that I've been proclaiming to you, and His name is Jesus Christ. So I say that's the first turn in the road. Um, At least the Epicureans and the Stoics, they weren't into God's judgment at all. A lot of people aren't. But Paul says it's going to happen. But here's the second turn in the road. Paul says the judge is also the Redeemer. That is so Christian. The one who's going to judge the earth is the one who redeems people if only they'll ask. The one who's going to judge all of sin is the one who forgives all of sin. I'm talking to you about Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. This resurrected one is going to come in the final judgment, but this resurrected one offers right now forgiveness. Enter into a relationship with that God. Wow, I I just have to wonder what was going on in their heads at that point. No wonder they said this must be a foreign God. (laughs) 
didn't seem quite right. This judge was also the redeemer. It certainly was against the fatalism of the Stoics. It was certainly against the randomness of the Epicureans. It was very principled and very individual and very personal. And it was one God, the judge, and redeemer as well. I um, I know one of the reasons it would have seemed so odd to them because of their point of view, this notion of a resurrection, and what did that have to do with anything? Another poem I'll read for you, um, a summary of it by A.C. Swinburne of what probably was a good description of at least the Stoics. It goes like this. From too much love of living... Sounds like a, um, a criticism of the Epicureans. But anyway, I'm sorry, I philosophized. From too much love of living, from hope and fear, set free. Wow, is that ghastly or what? From hope and fear, set free. We thank with brief thanksgiving, whatever gods may be, That no life lives forever. That dead men rise up never. That even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. I'll tell you, I'm no poet. I couldn't put words together like that. I guess they're beautiful in their eloquence but they leave me haunted and empty and sad if I were to believe them. In effect, Paul is saying, I've got good news. It's the opposite of that. And it comes to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who's both judge and redeemer. That's the unknown God I'm talking about. Isn't that an interesting approach? I don't know how many of you were here last week, but if you can remember anything about last week, compare it. Absolutely two different worlds. Last week, Peter preached to the people who already accepted the prophets and the Psalms, and he stepped into that vocabulary and that reality and communicated the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Paul speaks to a group of people who couldn't care less about the Psalms or the prophets and probably had virtually no knowledge of them at all and steps into their world, to their way of speaking, to their understanding, their reality, and figures out a way to communicate the good news concerning. Jesus. Is that awesome or what? Because the good news concerning Jesus is for everyone. The question in terms of our sharing of the good news is how do we step into the context in order to share it well? I think Paul does it beautifully here and and decisively. But what about us? I think that like Paul, it might be helpful for us to remind ourselves when we step into let's say, a non-religious context or one that's quasi-religious to embrace this reality, which I think Paul is embracing here, that everyone universally is inclined at some level to the worship of God. He seems to assume that. 
Well, it's pretty easy to assume that when you look around at Athens and you see all the gods. And sometimes it's hard to assume that when people speak as though they don't believe in God. But to use the words of any number of theologians, the church has routinely suggested, and I think scripturally based, that everyone has a honing signal, something deep within their hearts that's not satisfied until it's satisfied with God. Augustine, one of my favorites, put it this way, eternity is in your hearts. can't be eradicated. It can be suppressed. But the longing for eternity matches God. So in the context of sharing the good news, that assumption, even a quiet assumption, not even articulated assumption, but deeply held belief will help us to engage others. There's a deep longing in their hearts for eternity. I think the second thing that we can learn from Paul's uh, approach to the good news here is that just like God is all around us, Paul says, he's not far from me, he's right near. Just like God is all around us, Truth is all around us. I think that's why Paul reached out and grabbed a poet that they knew. He didn't endorse everything about the poet. He didn't say this poet is, you know, some kind of epiphany for me that tells me everything I need to know about God. He just grabbed the words of a couple of poets and he said, let me use these things and tie them together and show you the way in which there's truth out there. Because God's present everywhere and truth is present everywhere. You can identify it. Open your heart and mind to the truth concerning God. And and he tried to do that for them. I'd like to say at this point that one of the most terribly neglected themes in sharing the good news, especially among evangelicals, is the theme of common grace. I think Paul touches on it here. God is everywhere. Truth is everywhere, my friends. Just waiting for you to call it out and to point it out. And it may be in the most unexpected places. In places that admit nothing of God. And individuals who, in spite of themselves and their belief, are actually reflecting the image of God. God is out there. Truth is out there. It can be identified. Along that same line, um, I want to say this. I've been here for 16 years. Before that... I pastored in another college town, a little school called Yale University. My entire life of ministry has been devoted to proclaiming the good news in the shadow of universities. I love the university. I grow more fond of it every day. I love its people more and more. 
And honestly, I can't quite imagine myself anywhere else. It's just what I love. But here's what bothers me about us, okay? We have a tendency in a passionate pursuit of the truth to get rather arrogant and condemning and negative towards institutions that don't fully embrace who we are. And we do it sometimes so much and with such vitriol that it eclipses the truth that is deeply embedded in those places. My friends, we live across the street from one and they're discovering truth about God every moment of every day. And the truth is magnificent. It's beautiful. It's stunning. It's revolutionary. It's changing the world. And it would be easy for us just to be critical and not identify the common grace of God in that so-called secular place. We can do better than that. We can. We can enter into the conversation gently, quietly, and humbly. Learning deep things about truth. And then have the opportunity to share something about what we call the ultimate truth. Concerning Jesus Christ. Not everybody has that opportunity every day. We do. It's a wonderful opportunity. It requires humility. It requires faith. It requires hard work. And it also requires that you would be patient with really very little return. Because so often in that context, your gains are just tiny. But God's at work. So how do we do this? Well, among other things, just remind yourself of this. Not everything needs to be said in every context. Right? You get a boatload of what you consider to be truth that needs to be communicated to the world. Probably only a fraction of it is necessary in particular situations. Just hold your fire for a while, huh? <laughs> Don't try to get it all packed in. It's not helpful. The time will come when salient points will be important to the conversation, and then you use them. Second thing is, I don't think that it's necessary to be unnecessarily offensive. How about that for whatever it is? Bad sentence. You get the point. You know, the cross is offensive by itself. You don't need to be offensive yourself. There's a certain offense to it. Just let it be the offense. Why do you need to be offensive? Why do you need to pick something that picks a fight? Why do you or I think we have to be the person who makes the scene? You don't need to make a scene. Step into the reality of that world and don't unnecessarily create problems. The second thing, or the last thing, the last thing to say is this. 
you might feel ill-equipped for the job. Because you might not think yourself an intellectual. You might not think yourself a person who's articulate, even if you're not intellectual. There's some people who are just articulate without being intellectual. <laughs> they can just speak. You might be neither one of those things or other things that you think are necessary for the sharing of the good news. But you can. Remember Paul's statement? He said concerning God. He's not far away. He's near you. Open up your eyes. You know one of the reasons he's not far away? Because you're there. And the ministry of your presence may be the most powerful thing you can offer. He's near. He's not far away. Be present with him wherever you are. And he is there. The right timing, the right words, that'll come. Just be the presence of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, uh, the encouragement that we receive through others who have um, gone before us. Paul, in this case, Peter, last week. Others like uh, those who will be with us next weekend who help us to understand that the good news concerning Jesus Christ is is about justice too. It's about stepping into a situation and just bringing light. Maybe beginning with not a single word about Jesus, but being the presence of Jesus. Of course, inevitably, Lord, people will ask, when we're engaged in that kind of activity, what is it that motivates you? Or as Peter once said, just be prepared to... Give the hope that's within you when people ask. Lord, remind us we don't have to be smart. We don't have to be clever. We don't have to be articulate. We just need to be who you called us to be. Image bearers of God. And you'll do the rest of the work. We thank you for uh, the missions conference coming up and the ways in which that expands our understanding of the gospel. We also thank you for uh, an event coming up at IU, the Veritas Forum, which means truth. An engagement of intellectual types to think about whether or not it's actually reasonable to believe that God exists. We pray in the context of that conversation that people's eyes and hearts will be open to the truth concerning God. And that because uh, we have been where we're supposed to be, that your presence will be there with us. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.